my friend Laura Bailey sent me a book, gave me a book recently, and the title of this book is called Some. I think you may have a slide back there. It's written by David Engelman, and uh, it, the subtitle, if you can't see it back there, is 40 Tales from the Afterlives. And when I first saw this book, I was like, what in the world is this because you know there's there's a whole genre now of books written about people coming back from the dead. I don't know if you've read any of these. Uh, Ninety minutes in heaven, proof of heaven, my journey to heaven, and of course, if you're going a different direction, twenty three minutes in hell, life after life. And so Laura must have read my face, and she said, "No, it's not that kind of book." And it isn't. It's a collection of 40 short essays from Engelman, all from his imagination. He is a neuroscientist. And he imagines all of these different possibilities about what might happen after we die. None of them are based in the Christian Scriptures. None of them based on the Torah, the Koran, or Sanskrit, or any other religious text. They are all out of his imagination simply to make us, to force us to think about the here and now, the miracle that is your life. And if you have forgotten that, your life, that you are alive today, is genuinely a miracle. It is. And that is what I think Eagleman is trying to get us to do. In one story, he imagines you get to live your life over, but all of your activities are partitioned. I'll explain. For five months, you sit on a toilet and read a magazine. You take a shower that lasts 200 days. You sit at a red light waiting for it to turn green for six weeks. You can do that now on Highway 98. I don't... 18 months you stare into your refrigerator. Six months watching television commercials. I think it's more than that. You get the idea. Life happens here in these little doses, these little manageable pieces And if you took each activity all together, you would go insane. And that's Eagleman's point. Enjoy the life you have. As fragmented as it may appear, as mundane as it appear, it really isn't. On and on these stories go, though they aren't for everyone, because Eagleman is certainly a neuro-nerd after all. My favorite tale, though, from the book is one where a person is given a chance to choose his next life. You want to be a king? You want to be rich and famous? It's your choice. Let that sink in for a second. Well, this particular person has had a hard life, and he's not really interested in more money or more fame or more complexity. He wants the simple life. He wants simplicity. He wants to rest, especially his mind. So he chooses to come back as a horse. And why not, right? Grazing green pastures, frolicking over the hillsides, running across the plains without a care in the world, all as this this big, beautiful animal. And so his decision is made, and God speaks, and the transformation begins. And here is Eagleman's description. A mat of strong hair erupts to cover you like a blanket in winter. Some of you could go for a little bit of that now, especially gentlemen. I understand that, but stay with me. 
Your neck thickens. Your carotid arteries grow in diameter. Your fingers blend down into hoofs. Your concern about human affairs begins to slip away. But suddenly, for just a moment, you become aware of a problem that you overlooked. The more you become like a horse, the more you forget what it was like to be a human wishing that you were a horse. And that's not the worst of it. You realize that if you ever get a chance to come back again with your thick horse brain, you won't have the capacity to wish to be a human again. Now, I joke around my house all the time and say that if I get a chance at another life, I'm coming back as one of my wife's dogs. It's true. They live in the lap of luxury. They do nothing for themselves. They never want for a thing. And they get a lot more scratching behind the ears than I ever do, but that's probably too much information. But really, would you want to be anything other than human? Seriously, think with me a minute. Would you really? Would you really want to come back as a dog? Their lives are so short, and who wants to lead with their nose all the time anyway? A cat? They're obnoxious. A sea creature? Never getting to walk on land? Never getting to see a sunrise or a sunset? And Eagleman's already shown us that we shouldn't come back as a as a horse, with all of our faults, all of our complexities, all of our troubles and sufferings, no, we would remain human. But we would all, I think, like to be better humans. We would like to live in a better world, to be more at peace, more settled, more whole. We probably won't get another crack at it, though. So how do we become more peaceful more settled, more whole, more within the boots we are currently wearing, within the life we are currently living? And the answer, at least in part, is our text today from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-11. through 11. Paul, writing to the Philippians, as we've already covered in this series, he asks these opening questions in the second chapter. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any? Any comfort from His love? I hope so. Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Yeah. Now the hard questions. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. I told you a couple of weeks ago, Paul could be writing in 2018, not 60 AD. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. And then the verse we have been talking about for five or six weeks now. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Here we are. Though He was God, 
He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Word of God for the people of God. In that story about the horse, David Eagleman ends it with this question. What magnificent extraterrestrial creature would ever choose to step down and become a human? Implying, of course, that as we should never wish to be less than we are, anything in the universe superior to us would never stoop down to meet us where we are. But that's not quite right as we understand it from the Christian Scriptures. The solution to the frailties of our humanity is that God became human. More than that, God in Christ Jesus, that magnificent extraterrestrial creature, went to the extreme. He lost all dignity He became a slave. He was crucified a criminal on the lowest rung of the social strata to meet us where we are, all to give us the right mindset, the right attitude, and to show us the best way to live. In this, our continued study of Philippians, this is the essential text. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what is that attitude? What is that mind? I've been telling you for weeks we're coming to it. Here we are. It's an old hymn. Now, you didn't see it on the screen, but if you take a paper Bible, they still print those. Most of us don't read them. I read my Bible off, sad to tell you this, my iPad most of the time. But if you take a printed Bible and you look at the modern translations, you will see verses 6-8 through of Philippians 2 are set aside as little stanzas like a poem. And that's exactly what it was. These words are not original to the Apostle Paul. This is either an ancient Christian hymn or one of the first Christian confessions of faith. Paul is borrowing it. He is bringing it into his letter. And he says, Though he was with God... He did not think equality with God something to cling to. He gave up his divine privileges and took the the position of a slave. This is the mind of Christ. He was willing to let go of what was rightfully his to hold on to. He was willing to let that go for the sake of of others. If you want to really get to the ethic and meaning of what it means to be like Jesus, my friends, this is it. We let go of our selfishness, 
and our own prerogatives, what we think we deserve, what we think we have earned. We let go of our rights. And boy, everybody's talking about their rights these days. We let go of our entitlement. And I've quoted him before, as Richard Rohr says, to live in 21st century America is to get a Ph.D. in entitlement. We all are entitled to what we think is ours. And if we're going to live like Christ, we realize that all of that clinging and holding on gets in the way of loving and serving others. And if it gets in the way of loving and serving others, it gets in the way of actually following Jesus. The mind of Christ is to go low, to get down, To get off our high horses. To descend. Not to ascend. Not to make a name for ourselves. Not to climb climb the ladder. But to step down even to those places that we have always avoided because they're just too dirty and they're just too much. Think about it. If the Christ of heaven could cross time and space and cosmos to come to this little war-torn speck of the universe, this little world with all of our troubles, and He would become a human being, that He would become a criminal, that He would be crucified, killed in a way that is the most inhumane way to ever execute a person. If He would cover that kind of distance and step that low, what really have you and I ever surrendered that we thought was ours? The reason that Jesus has the highest name in the universe is because Jesus stepped down the lowest in the universe. So if you've got to be first, Jesus said it. The first will be last, and the last will be first. That's the economy of Jesus. That is the mindset of Jesus. We can speak of a Soren Kierkegaard's most famous fable fable here. It begins, There once was a king who loved a fair maiden. And this king has everything. He lives in a palace. He's wealthy. He's rich. He's powerful. People tremble when they come into his presence. He has everything that he needs, everything that he wants except one thing. He loves a fair maiden in the most humble, poor village in his kingdom. He loves her so much it melts his heart and he's trying to figure out how can I make this woman mine? And he thinks at first, well, I'll just go to her, whisk her out of that village and bring her to the palace and make her queen. That would work, except that would be no guarantee that she would love him. And so he has but one choice, Kierkegaard says. One night, when after all the servants have gone to sleep, he lays aside his robes and takes off his signet ring. He renounces his entire kingdom. And he puts on the clothes of a commoner. And he goes to that village. And as the sun rises the next morning, this maiden steps out of her little hovel, out of her little hut. And there stands this man she's never seen before with kind, beautiful eyes who simply wants to talk to her and one day hope to marry her. That is how Kierkegaard describes this passage. It's not a doctrinal passage, although we've made it that way. 
The temptation when we preach from this passage is for somebody like me to say, and now today, brothers and sisters, we will speak of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. I've never met a soul yet that has benefited one way or the other by that statement. Because it's academic. God and man colliding together in this hypostatic union. Hypostatic. Nobody uses that word. Paul doesn't use that word. And Paul doesn't use this passage to teach us or tell us what we should believe about Jesus. He doesn't. He uses this passage to show us how to live like Jesus. It's not a doctrinal explanation. It is a living example. You want to be like Jesus? Get low. Get down. Descend. Serve. Give up your rights. Give up your pride. Give up your ego. Give up your protectionist ways. Mine, 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 mine. Give up on being, pardon me, the self-centered, selfish, egotistical person that you are and I am. I'll quickly add that. Because we are. Are we not? Now, wait a minute. Are we not? I thought so. We are. Because you know why we are? It's natural to be that way. Who are you going to look out for first? You. That's natural. That's the human way to survive. The Jesus way to survive is, I've got to look after somebody else before myself. I'll give it all. Even if it kills me. For somebody else. In love. For someone else. Not to change the world, but simply for the sake of love. Let me give you a vivid example and I'll finish. This young man right here. Time Magazine's 2014 Person of the Year. This is Dr. Kent Brantley. Brantley went to West Africa in early 2014 with Samaritan's Purse to combat the deadly Ebola outbreak there. And it was deadly. That 2014 outbreak killed 12,000 people. The largest single Ebola outbreak in the history of the disease going back to 1976. And Brantley went there as a Christian, as a doctor, as someone who loved the people of that area who did not have care. It was determined when the outbreak was over, my friends, that if a village in West Africa did not have expert care, the mortality rate for for a village that contracted Ebola was greater than 95%. You had a 5% chance of living if there was not a physician, a skilled physician there to care for you. Brantley was there for two months, healing, working. He couldn't heal everyone, but he he sure did do a good job on the ones that he got to. The biggest the biggest thing that he did was just simply quarantine the sick, understanding who was sick so that it wouldn't spread. And then on a Saturday morning, after seven weeks of being there, he woke up with a raging fever. And he knew that despite all of his precautions and all the steps that he had taken, he had Ebola. And he did. In his particular case, his body began to tremble out of control. His heart would race. His fever reached more than 105 degrees. Fluid filled his lungs. He was dying. Thousands of miles from home. From his wife and his kids. 
And it was then that a single dose of an experimental drug arrived at his outpost. And the outpost chief got that drug and took it first to Dr. Brantley. He was the senior physician on site. He was the most important person in that village because he had the knowledge and the skill to heal others. And they said, here is the drug. It will save your life. And Dr. Brantley gave it to a nurse who had also contracted the disease and refused it himself and saved her life. Dr. Brantley eventually recovered after almost dying. A harrowing, harrowing transfer to Emory University, treated by the Center for Disease Control, stayed isolated from his family for almost three months, and finally emerged from that ICU unit healthy and whole. But he passed on what would have certainly saved his life to someone else. Here are his words. I'm not really a humble person. Just ask my wife. I'm not a hero. And I still wrestle with the fact that I survived while so many West Africans did not. I survived not because I am more faithful or because God loves me differently than He loves others. My faith is not what saved me. My faith is what tells me that even though I cannot understand, God is good. God is love, and He will make all things right somewhere, someplace in the end. So even if I had died, my wife would be sitting here in front of you today telling you that what I did was the right thing to do. Wow, I guess I should join a mission and go to the Congo then. No. You know what you need to do? Start right where you live. Right here. You don't have to go across the world to be a servant. You don't have to be across the world to show the love of Christ and the example of Christ to others. Step down. Go low. Open your heart to people and places that others have avoided. Give yourself over to serve. For that is the mind and the attitude of Christ, who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.